0: Chapters three and four of Tenting Tonight by Mary Roberts Reinhart this Librivox recording is in the public domain. Chapter three Bridge Creek to Bowman Lake The first night we camped at Bridge Creek on a river flat. Beside us the creek rolled and foamed, the horses in their rope corral lay down and rolled in sheer ecstasy when their heavy packs were removed the cook set up his sheet-iron stove beside the creek built a wood fire lifted the stove over it fried meat boiled potatoes heated beans and made coffee while the tents were going up from a thicket near by came the thud of an axe as branches were cut for bough beds i have slept on all kinds of bough beds they may be divided into three classes there is the one which is high in the middle and slopes down at the side there is nothing so slippery as pine-needles so that by morning you are quite likely to be not only off the bed but out of the tent and there is the bow-bed made by the guide when he is in a great hurry which consists of large branches and not very many needles so that in the morning on rising one is as furrowed as a waffle off the iron and there is the third kind which is the real bough-bed but which cannot be tossed off in a moment like a poem but must be the result of calculation time and much labor it is to this bough-bed that i shall some day indite an ode this is the way you go about it first you take a large and healthy woodsman with an axe who cuts down a tree a substantial tree because this is the frame of your bed but on no account do this yourself one of the joys of a bough bed is seeing somebody else build it the tree is an essential it is cut into six foot lengths unless one is more than six feet long if the bed is intended for one two side pieces with one at the head and one at the foot are enough laid flat on a level place making a sort of boxed-in rectangle if the bed is intended for two another log down the centre divides it into two bunks and prevents quarrelling now begins the real work of constructing the bow bed if one is a good manager while the frame is being made the younger members of the family have been performing the loving task of getting the branches together when a sufficient number of small branches has been accumulated this number varying from one ton to three judging by size and labour the bough-bed is built by the simple expedient of sticking the branches into the enclosed space like flowers into a vase they must be packed very closely stem down this is a slow and not particularly agreeable task for one's loving family and friends owing to the tendency of pine and balsam needles to jag indeed i have known it to happen that after a try or two some one in the outfit is delegated to the task of official bedmaker, and a slight coldness is noticeable when one refers to dusk and bedtime. Over these soft and feathery plumes of balsam, soft and feathery only through six blankets, is laid the bedding, and on this couch the wearied and saddle sore tourist may sleep as comfortably as in his grand aunt's feather bed. But, dear traveller, it is much simpler to take an air-mattress and a foot-pump. True, even this has its disadvantages. It is not safe to stick pins into it while disrobing at night. Occasionally a faulty valve lets go, and the sleeper dreams he is falling from the Woolworth Tower. But lacking a sturdy woodsman and a loving family to collect branches, I advise the air-bed. Fishing at Bridge Creek that first evening was poor. We caught dozens of small trout, but it would have taken hundreds to satisfy us after our lunchless day, and there were other reasons. One casts for trout. There is no sitting on a mossy stone and watching a worm guilefully struggling to attract a fish to the hooks. No, one casts. Now I have learned to cast fairly well. On the lawn at home, or in the middle of a ten-acre lot, cleared, or the center of a lake, I can put out quite a lot of line. In one cast out of three, I can drop a fly so that it appears to be committing suicide, which is the correct way. But in a thicket, I am lost. I hold the woman's record for getting the hook in my hair or the lobe of the little boy's ear. I have hung fish high in trees more times than phonographs have hanged Danny Deaver. I can, under some circumstances, i.e., the thicket, leave camp with a rod, four six-foot leaders, an expensive English line, and a smile, and return an hour later with a six-inch trout, a bandaged hand, a hundred and eighty mosquito bites, no leaders, and no smile so we fished little that first evening and on the discovery that candles had been left out of the cook's outfit we retired early to our bow beds which were as it happened that night of class a there was a deer lick on our camp ground there at bridge creek and during the night deer came down and strayed through the camp one of the guides saw a black bear also we saw nothing some day I shall write an article called, Wild Animals I Have Missed. We had made fourteen miles the first day, and with a late start. It was not bad, but the next day we determined to do better. At five o'clock we were up, and at five-thirty tents were down and breakfast under way. We had had a visitor the night before, that curious anomaly, a young hermit. He had been a very well-known pugilist in the lightweight class, and his health failing he had sought the wilderness. There he had lived for seven years alone. We asked him if he never cared to see people, but he replied that trees were all the company he wanted. Deer came and browsed around his tiny shack there in the woods, all the trout he could use played in his front garden. He had a dog and a horse, and he wanted nothing else. He came to see us off the next morning, and I think we amused him. We seemed to need so much. He stared at our thirty-one horses, sixteen of them packed with things he had learned to live without, but I think he rather hated to see us go. We had brought a little excitement into his quiet life. The 1st bow bough-bed had been a failure, for, note you, I had not then learned of the bow bed de this information which i have given you so freely dear reader what has it not cost me in sleepless nights and family coldness and aching muscles so i find this note in my daily journal written that day on horseback and therefore not very legible Mem, after this must lie over the camp-ground until i find a place that fits me to sleep on then have the tent erected over it There was a little dissension in the party that morning, Joe having awakened in the night while being violently shoved out under the edge of his tent by his companion, who was a restless sleeper. But ill-temper cannot live long in the open. We settled to the swinging walk of the trail. In the mountain meadows there were carpets of flowers. They furnished highly aesthetic, if not very substantial, food for our horses during our brief rests they were very brief those rests all too soon pete would bring angel to me and i would vault into the saddle extremely figurative this and we would fall into line pete swaying with the cowboy's roll in the saddle the optimist bouncing freely joe with an eye on that pack-horse which carried the delicacies of the trip the big boy with long legs that almost touched the ground, the middle boy with eyes roving for adventure, the little boy deadly serious and hoping for a bear, and somewhere in the rear where he could watch all responsibilities and supply the smokers with matches, the head. That second day we crossed Dutch Ridge and approached the Flathead. What I have called here the Flathead is known locally as the North Fork. The pack outfit had started first. Long before we caught up with them, we heard the bells on the lead horses ringing faintly. Passing a pack outfit on the trail is a difficult matter. The wise little horses, traveling free and looked after only by a wrangler or two, do not like to be passed. One of two things happens when the saddle outfit tries to pass the pack. Either the pack starts on a smart canter ahead, or it turns wildly off into the forest to the accompaniment of much complaint by the drivers. A pack-horse loose on a narrow trail is a dangerous matter. With its bulging pack, it worms its way past anything on the trail, and bad accidents have followed. Here, however, there was room for us to pass. Tiny gophers sat up beside the trail and squeaked at us. A coyote yelped, bumping over fallen trees creaking and groaning and swaying, came the boat-wagon. Mike had found a fishing-line somewhere, and pretended to cast from the bow. "'Ship ahoy!' he cried when he saw us, and his instructions to the driver were purely nautical. "'Hard astern!' he yelled, going down a hill, and instead of gee or haw, he shouted port or starboard." an acquaintance of george and mike has built a boat which is intended to go upstream by the force of the water rushing against it and turning a propeller we had a spirited discussion about it because as one of the men objected it's all right until you get to the head of the stream then what are you going to do he asked she'll only go up she won't go down pete the chief guide was a german he was rather uneasy for fear we intended to cross the canadian line but we reassured him a big blonde in a wide flapping stetson black angora chaps and flannel shirt with a bandanna he led our little procession into the wilderness and sang as he rode the head frequently sang with him and because the only song the head knew very well in german was the lorelei we had it hour after hour being translated to one of the boatmen, he observed, I have known girls like that. I guess I'd leave most any boat for them, but I'd leave this boat for most any girl. We were approaching the mountains, climbing slowly but steadily. We passed through Lone Tree Prairie, where one great pine dominated the country for miles around, and stopped by a small river for luncheon. Of all the meals that we took in the open, perhaps luncheon was the most delightful. Condensed milk makes marvellous cocoa. We opened tins of things, consulted maps, eased the horses' cinches, rested our own tired bodies for an hour or so. For the going, while much better than we had expected, was still slow. It was rare, indeed, to be able to get the horses out of a walk and there is no more muscle-racking occupation than riding a walking horse hour after hour through a long day. By the end of the second day, we were well away from even that remote part of civilization from which we had started, and a terrible fact was dawning on us. The cook did not like us. Now we all have our small vanities, and mine has always been my success with cooks, I like cooks. As time goes on, I am increasingly dependent on cooks. I never fuss a cook, or ask how many eggs a cake requires, or remark that we must be using the lard on the hardwood floors. I never make any of the small jests on that order with which most housewives try to reduce the cost of living. No, I really go out of my way to ignore leftovers, and not once on this trip had I so much as mentioned dish towels or anything unpleasant. I had seen my digestion slowly going with a course of delicious but indigestible saddle-bags, which were all we had for bread. But I was failing. Bill unpacked and cooked and packed up again and rode on the chuck-wagon. But there was something wrong. Perhaps it was the fall out of the wagon, Perhaps we were too hungry. We were that, I know. Perhaps he looked ahead through the vista of days, and saw that formidable equipment of fishing-tackle, and mentally he was counting the fish to clean and cook and clean and cook and clean and—the center of a camping trip is the cook. If in the spring men's hearts turn to love, in the woods they turn to food, and cooking is a temperamental art. No unhappy cook can make a souffle. Not of course that we had souffle. A camp cook should be of a calm and placid disposition. He has the hardest job that I know of. He cooks with inadequate equipment on a tiny stove in the open where the air blows smoke into his face and cinders into his food. He must cook either on his knees or bending over to within a foot or so of the ground, and he must cook moving as it were worse than that he must cook not only for the party but for a hungry crowd of guides and packers that sits around in a circle and watches him and urges him and gets under his feet and if he is unpleasant takes his food fairly out of the frying-pan under his eyes if he is not on guard he is the first up in the morning and the last in bed he has to dry his dishes on anything that comes handy and then pack all of his grub on an unreliable horse and start off for the next eating ground so knowing all this and also that we were about a thousand miles from the nearest employment office and several days hard riding from a settlement we went to bill with tribute we praised his specialties we gave him a college lad turned guide for the summer to assist him. We gathered up our own dishes, we inquired for his bruise, but gloom hung over him like a cloud. And he could cook. Well... We had made a forced trip that day, and the last five miles were agonizing. In vain we sat sideways on our horses, threw a leg over the pommel, got off and walked and led them. Bowman Lake, our objective point, seemed to recede very few people have ever seen bowman lake yet i believe it is one of the most beautiful lakes in this country it is not large perhaps only twelve miles long and from a mile to two miles in width save for the lower end it lies entirely surrounded by precipitous and inaccessible peaks old rainbow on whose mist cap the setting sun paints a true rainbow day after day square peak rooter peak and peabody named with the usual poetic instinct of the geological survey they form a natural wall round the upper end of the lake of solid granite slopes which rise over a mile in height above it perpetual snow covers the tops of these mountains and melting in innumerable waterfalls feeds the lake below so far as i can discover we were taking the first boat with the possible exception of an indian canoe long ago to Bowman Lake. Not the first boat, either, for the geological survey had nailed a few boards together, and the ruin of this venture was still decaying on the shore. There was a report that Bowman Lake was full of trout. That was one of the things we had come to find out. It was for Bowman Lake primarily that all the reels and flies and other lure had been arranged if it was true then 24 square miles of virgin lake were ours to fish from end of chapter 3 chapter 4 a fisherman's paradise after our first view of the lake the instant decision was to make a permanent camp there for a few days and this we did tents were put up for the luxurious minded 3 of them Mine was erected over me when, as I had predetermined, I had found a place where I could lie comfortably. The men belonging to the outfit, of course, slept under the stars. A packer, a guide, or the cook with an outfit like ours has, outside of such clothing as he wears or carries rolled in his blankets, but one possession, and that is his tarp-bed. With such a bed, a can of tomatoes, and a gun, it is said that a cow-puncher can go anywhere. Once or twice I was awake in the morning before the cook's loud call of come and get it brought us from our tents. I never ceased to view with interest this line of tarp beds, each with its sleeping occupant, his hat on the ground beside him, ready, when the call came, to sit up blinking in the sunlight, put on his hat, crawl out, and be ready for the day the boats had travelled well the next morning after a breakfast of ham and eggs fried potatoes coffee and saddle-bags we were ready to try them out and here i shall be generous for this means that next year we shall go there and find other outfits there before us and people in the latest thing in riding clothes and fancy trout creels and probably sixty-dollar reels Bowman Lake is a fisherman's paradise. The first day on the lake we caught 69 cutthroat trout, averaging a pound each, and this without knowing where to look. In the morning we could see them lying luxuriously on shelving banks in the sunlight, only three to six feet below the surface. They rose like a shot to the flies. For some reason George Locke, our fisherman, resented their taking the Parmachine Bell perhaps because the trout of his acquaintance had not cared for this fly. Or maybe he considered to bell, not sportsmanly. The brown hackle and royal coachman did well, however, and in later fishing on this lake we found them more reliable than the gayer flies. In the afternoon the shallows failed us, but in deep holes where the brilliant walls shelved down to incredible depths they rose again in numbers." It was perfectly silent. Doubtless, countless curious wild eyes watched us from the mountain slopes and the lake borders, but we heard not even the cracking of brushwood under cautious feet. The tracks of deer, where they had come down to drink, a dead mountain lion floating in a pool, the slow flight of an eagle across the face of old rainbow, and no sound but the soft hiss of a line as it left the reel— that was bowman lake that day as it lay among its mountains so precipitous are the slopes so rank the vegetation where the forest encroaches that we were put to it to find a ridge large enough along the shore to serve as a foothold for luncheon at last we found a tiny spot perhaps ten feet long by three feet wide and on that we landed the sun went down the rainbow clouds gathered above the peaks above and still the trout were rising when at last we turned for our ten-mile row back to camp it was almost dusk now and then when i am tired and the things of this world press close and hard i think of those long days on that lonely lake and the homecoming at nightfall toward the pinpoint of glow the distant campfire, which was our beacon light, the boat moved to the long, tired sweep of the oars around us, the black forest, the mountains overhead glowing and pink as if lighted from within, and then at last the grating of our little boat on the sand and night during the day. Our horses were kept in a rope corral, sometimes they were quiet. Sometimes a spirit of mutiny seemed to possess the entire thirty-one. There is in such a string always one bad horse that, with ears back and teeth showing, keeps the entire bunch milling. When such a horse begins to stir up trouble, the wrangler tries to rope him and get him out. Mad excitement follows as the noose whips through the air, but they stay in the corral. So curious is the equine mind that it seldom realizes that it could duck and go under the rope, or chew it through, or for that matter strain against it and break it. At night we turned the horses loose. Almost always in the morning some were missing and had to be rounded up. The greater part, however, stayed close to the bell-mare. It was our first night at Bowman Lake, I think, that we heard a mountain lion screaming, the herd immediately stampeded it was far away so that we could not hear the horses running but we could hear the agitated and rapid ringing of the bell and not long after the great cat went whining by the camp in the morning the horses were far up the mountain side some time i shall write that article on wild animals i have missed we were in a great game country but we had little chance to creep up on anything but deer. The bells of the pack outfit, our own jingling spurs, the accoutrements, the very tinkle of the tin cups on our saddles, must have made our presence known to all the wilderness-dwellers long before we appeared. After we had been at Bowman Lake a day or two, while at breakfast one morning, we saw two of the guides racing their horses in a mad rush toward the camp, Just outside, one of the ponies struck a log, turned a somersault, and threw his rider, who, nothing daunted, came hurrying up on foot. They had seen a bull moose not far away. Instantly, all was confusion. The horses were not saddled. One of the guides gave me his and flung me on it. The little boy made his first essay at bareback riding. In a wild scamper, we were off, leaping logs and dodging trees the little boy fell off with a terrific thud and sat up looking extremely surprised and when we had got there as clandestinely as a steam calliope in a circus procession the moose was gone i sometimes wonder looking back whether there really was a moose there or not did i or did i not see a twinkle in bill shay's eye as he described the sweep of the moose's horns i wonder Birds there were in plenty, wild ducks that swam across the lake at terrific speed as we approached, plover snipe, tiny gray birds with long bills and white breasts, feeding along the edge of the lake peacefully at our very feet, an eagle carrying a trout to her nest. Brown squirrels came into the tents and ate our chocolate and wandered over us fearlessly at night. Bears left tracks around the camp but we saw none after we left the lake mcdonald country yet this is a great game country the warden reports a herd of thirty-six moose in the neighborhood of bowman lake mountain lion lynx marten bear and deer abound a trapper built long ago a substantial log shack on the north shore of the lake and although it is many years since it was abandoned it is still almost weatherproof all of us have our dreams. Some day I should like to go back and live for a little time in that forest cabin. In the long snow-bound days after he set his traps, the trapper had busied himself fitting it up. A tin can made his candle-bracket on the wall, axe-hewn planks formed a table and a bench, and diagonally across a corner he had built his fireplace of stones from the lakeside. He had a simple method of constructing a chimney. He merely left without a roof that corner of the cabin and placed slanting boards in it. He had made a crane, too, which swung out over the fireplace. All of the Rocky Mountains were in his back garden, and his front yard was Bowman Lake. We had had fair weather so far, but now rain set in. Hail came first, then a steady rain. The tents were cold. We got out our slickers, and stood out around the beach fire in the driving storm, and ate our breakfast of hot cakes, fried ham, potatoes, and onions cooked together, and hot coffee. The cook rigged up a tarpaulin over his little stove, and stood there muttering and frying. He had refused to don a slicker, and his red sweater, soaking up the rain, grew heavy with moisture, and began to stretch. Down it crept down and down. The cook straightened up from his frying-pan and looked at it, and then he said, "'There, little sweater, don't you cry. You'll be a blanket by-and-by.' This little touch of humor on his part cheered us. Perhaps, seeing how sporting we were about the weather, he was going to like us after all. Well..." Our new tents leaked disheartening little drips that came in and wandered idly over our blankets to lodge in little pools here and there a cold wind blew i resorted to that camper's delight a stone heated in the camp fire to warm my chilled body we found one or two magazines torn and dejected and read them advertisements and all and still when it seemed the end of the day it was not high noon By afternoon we were saturated. The camp steamed. We ate supper after dark, standing around the campfire, holding our tin plates of food in our hands. The firelight shone on our white faces and dripping slickers. The horses stood with their heads low against the storm. The men of the outfit went to bed on the sodden ground, with the rain beating in their faces. The next morning was grey, yet with a hint of something better. At eight o'clock the clouds began to lift. Their solidity broke. The lower edge of the cloud bank that had hung in a heavy gray line, straight and ominous, grew ragged. Shreds of vapor detached themselves and moved off, grew smaller, disappeared. Overhead the pall was thinner, and finally it broke and a watery ray of sunlight came through, and at last old rainbow at the upper end of the lake Poked her granite head through its vapory sheathings. Angel, my white horse, also eyed the sky, and then putting her pink nose under the corral rope, she gently worked her way out. The rain was over. The horses provided endless excitement. Whether at night, being driven off by mad circling riders to the grazing ground, or rounded up into the corral in the morning, they gave the men all they could do getting them into the corral was like playing pigs and clover. As soon as a few were in and the wranglers started for others, the captives escaped and shot through the camp. There were times when the air seemed full of flying hoofs and twitching ears, of swinging ropes and language. On the last day at Bowman Lake we realized that although the weather had lifted, the cook's spirits had not. He was polite enough he had always been polite to the party, but he packed in a dejected manner. There was something ominous in the very way he rolled up the strawberry jam in sacking. The breaking up of a few days' camp is a busy time. The tents are taken down at dawn almost over one's head. Blankets are rolled and strapped. The pack-ponies groan and try to roll their packs off. Bill Shay quotes a friend of his as contending that the way to keep a pack-pony cinched is to put his pack on him, throw the diamond hitch, cinch him as tight as possible, and then take him to a drinking-place and fill him up with water. However, we did not resort to this. End of chapter 4